Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. I'm introducing additional content formats to Steam Powered, and one will take the form of segues, where I have the opportunity to share more fascinating stories relating to women in Steam, as well as other plot bunnies to take my fancy. To that end, my guest today is RJ Andrews. RJ is a data storyteller who helps organizations solve information problems. He's the editor of the book series Information Graphic Visionaries, celebrating spectacular data visualization creators. Join us as we talk about Florence Nightingale, nurse, statistician, social reformer, and data visionary. We speak about her intriguing story and how she used data visualization in her campaign for sanitary reform. Welcome, RJ. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today about Florence Nightingale, the subject of one of the books in your series, Information Graphics Visionaries. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, she's a real she's a real pistol, so I'm excited to talk all about her. Amazing. Okay, so we'll get to that in a little bit, but I'm very much interested in others' journeys, and I'd love to learn a little bit about yours because you know, before becoming a data storyteller, you started off in mechanical engineering. So how did you get from NetEng through to data storytelling and visualization? Uh, working as a pure engineer for several years, um, I realized that the world's biggest problems were really not technology problems, they were people problems. And so I sought a craft and a, and a career path that allowed me to uh, apply some of my technical um, talents, but also work a little bit more closely with people and, and people problems. And um, that combined with uh, some sparks of inspiration at MIT's Media Lab, um, where I got really turned on to the world of bits, um, it inspired me to, uh, to, to, to go and chase this, this uh, craft that is sometimes called data storytelling, sometimes we call it data visualization, um, mm. think charts, maps, diagrams, um, information graphics. Um, that's, that, that's sort of like the, the home base for me, but really, it's not about creating information, it's about informing people. And, uh, and so really you're, you're in a communications art, even though it takes a, a lot of technical skills still in order to practice that art. Absolutely. And you know, with all the data that we do have kind of floating all around us today, it, it's so important to be able to communicate that to people, especially when you know, a lot of it is very technical, very detailed and hard to communicate normally under those circumstances. So how, how do you get to that level of, you know, cultivate that creativity to be able to communicate some of these very complex concepts to, I guess, as we'll be talking about, the sparrows, the general population and people who wouldn't normally be, you know, so technically inclined? Uh, I, there's, depending on what you're trying to convey, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, one approach uh, that I love is embodied cognition. And so embodied cognition is that um, we are all people and we all have, you know, fairly similar bodies, um, you know, sort of forward facing eyes and eyes that are near the tops of our heads, you know, things like this. And because we have bodies and we live in a physical world, we interact with the physical world, we can, um, we can uh, lean into our embodied cognition to represent things that are actually invisible, things that we can't see. We can make them visible using uh, tools like data visualization. So for example, for example, um, when you're in a uh, when you're in a forest, um, you know the trees are very large. But then 
you might see a red cardinal fly through the forest. And even though it's very small, its motion and its salient color uh, is going to catch your attention. And so that is something where you're taking the uh, evolutionary, you know, sort of uh, biology of the eye and how our brain processes information. You're saying, oh, well, if something's red, maybe even if it's moving, if you're on a computer screen, then, uh, then you can catch somebody's attention. And it's, it's, it's very, you know, basic things like that to things like, well, we want to visualize the, uh, uh, the economic uh, gross, gross domestic product of a country, and we're going to use a bar chart. And we're going to compare two countries, one country versus the other. And the bar chart is based on a metaphor, which is basically a stack of stuff. And we can stack things in real life, like we can stack a, a stack of, you know, coins. Not too many coins or the stack will probably fall over. We certainly can't stack all the coins or all the bills necessary to actually represent an economy, but we can, um, we can use that metaphor uh, to, to represent it in a way that um, many people can access, or at least it can make it easier to access. And another important thing when you're trying to convey information is understand that one of the reasons people can access that metaphor is because it's a commonly used metaphor. It's part of, uh, it's part of our common culture, our communication culture. And this is a, a very recently um, developed and recently established communication culture, the communication of, uh, the culture of data visualization. But there are already norms and there are already, um, there are already ways of conveying information that we can, um, that we can uh, reuse and that can uh, lower the barriers to access for much of our audience. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's because of the way that, you know, a lot of people will say that, you know, they're visual learners or they're, or they're written learners, but mm -hmm. because a lot of the way that we interact with the world is visual, being able to relate all of these concepts in a visual manner in ways that, you know, we can kind of compare to what we normally do in our day to day, just makes things so much easier to process. It's fantastic. Yes, it, well, it's, it's a, it's, it's a high throughput channel, the eyes, uh, you, you can take in yes. a lot of information with your eyes. Yes, absolutely. So Florence Nightingale, nicknamed the lady with the lamp from when she did her patient rounds at night during the Crimean War. Her name is synonymous with the ideal of someone who's compassionate or caring of the ill or disadvantaged. And the namesake of the grossly inaccurate Nightingale effect, which describes a situation where the carer develops romantic feelings towards a patient. But there'll be those who may not be aware that Florence Nightingale was not just a nurse. She was a statistician, social mm. reformer, and founder of modern nursing. And is one of the subjects of your book series, Information Graphics Visionaries. But let's backtrack a little. What motivated you to write the series in the first place? Oh, so uh, it, it's multi-pronged. Um, it was partially my experience uh, publishing my first book, uh, Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data, and sort of the lessons and sort of the, 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 the uh, thorns and thistles I experienced uh, publishing <laughs> that and wanting to do it better the next time around. Um, mm -hmm. It was partially recognizing that there is a certain maturity uh, that was happening um, in publications about data visualization and in particular the history of data visualization and the existing publications created an opportunity because what they did is they established uh, a catalog and mm -hmm. but what they didn't do um, or what most did not do and, and has not been done is to go really deep and to focus a lens on exactly how, how did this happen? What happened? Why did it happen? And to me, as an enthusiast for the craft of information graphics, I believe it's very, very important to elevate the craft of information graphics um, and 
in order to do that, we have to start treating it in the same way that we might treat um, fine art. So the Mona Lisa painting um, or treat a, you know, pure, uh, pure science like E equals MC squared. Right. And so these are icons and not yeah. only they're icons, but they're icons that have, you know, um, entire uh, exhibitions organized around them or they're icons that have you know, movies and TV shows and books written about them and just sort of a, an obsessive uh, cultural lens focused on them. And I'm like, well, we have to treat information graphics with the same respect and they, design, that they deserve the same um, care and honor, but also scrutiny. And so that, mm. that's, that, that's, what, um, that's one of the motivations for the series. Um, but, there's the, but, but don't discount the first thing I said, which I, I do, I, I am a, uh, I, I'm a bibliophile and I love beautiful books. I love making beautiful books. And so this is also an opportunity to make, you know, beautiful artifacts. Yes. And again, storytelling and, you know, of all that amazing history that, you know, shapes what we do today with all of this kind of thing. And, you know, it, I really did love reading your book. It was fascinating. I had so many additional rabbit holes through the 1800s yeah. where so much stuff actually did happen in progressing where we are technologically and, you know, socially. It's amazing. So how did data visualization factor into Florence Nightingale's work? So uh, Nightingale uh, enters the Crimean War, which um, it, with, with a lot of uh, mathematical firepower um, and with uh, having studied statistics, um, but she wasn't a data visualization expert entering the war. And in fact, you know, she didn't do an enormous amount of data work while at war. She, she used tables of information to run her operations and she did some maybe comparative analysis in the sense that she understood um, how many people were dying in this army versus that army. Uh, but her statistical triumphs really come after the war. And they're due in large part because she meets this guy at a dinner party and uh, his name's William Farr, and Dr. Farr is the top uh, statistical talent in all of England. And he had done a lot of data visualization. Not only had he done a lot of data visualization, but he had, um, he had an entire team of clerks working for him at the General Register Office. And at this General Register Office, or GRO, um, Farr had published several, uh, several um, publications over... Uh, over the previous decades with data visualization. So she and Har, Far hit it off and they start educating one another over about the first six months of their, of their, uh, of their relationship, uh, of their working relationship. And so she's telling him about the war. She's telling him about where, they're, where they can get data about the war. And at the same time, he's lecturing her and sharing papers with her, um, getting her up to speed on, on statistics. And, you know, statistics at this time isn't quite, you know, how we imagine statistics. And maybe that would be, you know, an interesting aside. Um, at the end of their, and so through this process, she's exposed to, uh, to FARS uh, data visualization. And Nightingale purposes, uh, purposes the data visualization, the craft of data visual, visualization in a very particular way. So she doesn't use data visualization to do analysis. You know, what she does is she uses data visualization to uh, attract attention to her work and also 
um, to convey very, very basic numerical facts to her audience. And so hmm. you opened, uh, you said, mentioned earlier the sparrows. She, she wanted to use data visualization to catch the sparrows, meaning to, to catch common people. And she doesn't mean common people like, like, uh, like, um, like lower middle class commoners. What she's talking about is people who have uh, common intellectual abilities. So she's talking in particular about royals. She's talking about military officers. Uh, and in some sense, she's also talking about medical officers, doctors, uh, who don't really understand uh, uh, statistics. And the type of statistics they're doing is you know, somewhat particular, doing population statistics, you know, basically what we call today social science. Yes. And so at that time, because it seemed very new from how it was described in the book, that you know, people didn't really take these sorts of numbers into account. You had totals and sums, but they didn't really break it down any further to be able to determine causality or for efficiency or for administration purposes. Like it was, it seemed as though the way that Nightingale handled these statistics in the way of handling systems thinking and systems engineering was very new to that period. Is that, is that really the case from back then? Yeah, so if, if we zoom out a little bit from Nightingale herself and what she mm. did with FAR is that there, the, the typical statistical tools we have now are sort of, sort of mathematical, analytical, non-visual tools um, like correlation and regression. Uh, reg so regression analysis, um, you know, here's a number that represents how, uh, uh, how related these two phenomena are. Um, so, so they didn't, this was not uh, fully developed yet and not, certainly not widely adopted yet. Um, and so what did they have to rely on to, to understand, are these two phenomena related? They had visual analytics. And so what they would do is they make pictures and they would use these pictures to compare phenomena. And these pictures are bar charts. Um, they're two maps, uh, choropleth maps, colored in the same way, and then put side by side and see, you know, is, is there any pattern? Is there any relationship? And so um, data visualization uh, is broadly being used um, to power a lot of simple analysis, what we consider simple analysis. Um, at the same time, again, zoomed out a little bit, we have an explosion of data, and particularly an explosion of data in Great Britain. The reason there's an explosion of data is because there's a bunch of social reform laws passed in the 1830s. One of them is the mass collection and mass production of data, of civil data, particularly um, who's born, who dies, and who's getting married. Um, and on those data forms, you have interesting things like cause of death. And, um, and then from those forms, you have an entire bureaucracy generated of standardizing how how this this data is recorded, generated. Um, you know how 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 do you determine cause of death? You know are, are all the causes of death um, the same? So if Nightingale enters a story at a time where there is sort of a nice platform of established um, visualization and established um, civilian data, but the military is a, is a relative mess to civilian operations. Mm. And so the British Army, their data quality is very poor. Um, everything is sort of written by hand in a variety of formats. There's no one person or, or, or one unit looking at, uh, over all the data and analyzing it in any sort of uh, holistic, uh, holistic fashion. And that doesn't mean that you know, lonely people are not doing, trying to do it 
on their own, but there's no top-down, uh, there's no top-down vision for um, how army data, you know, could be put to work to save lives. And so uh, a lot of the story of Nightingale is recognizing the strength of civilian data, which she, which she witnessed by her association with FAR and trying to bring the British army data up to the same, to the same height. Absolutely. And because, you know, they, they hadn't gotten to that stage where they were thinking about data and statistics and organization in that way, you know, it, it was very difficult for her to convey the importance of having this information in a structured format, you know, to get them on board, to get them to, you know, start developing the systems to make things more efficient in more than just the pure military way, like the entire stuff with hospitals and with caring for their actual soldiers and their people and their resources. So what were the sorts of issues that Nightingale faced when she was trying to get the army up to speed with all of this kind of new design for data? So the, the, the army, just like any organization, is very resistive to relinquishing any, any control. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a number of reforms that they were seeking and um, sort of two big buckets. One is uh, supply chain. So supplies, so clothing and food and what are people eating and where are they, you know, sort of what, what, what sort of tents are they sleeping in? And, you know, how, how are these being provisioned? How are they, how are they being properly uh, supplied to the soldiers? So that's, that's sort of one big bucket. And the other big bu bucket they, they, they called um, uh, sanitary reform. And you could think of sanitary reform as, um, you know, we associate sanitation now with cleanliness. And so that's a, that's, that's a product of this era. But um, if you think of the word uh, sanitary, it really comes from, uh, I think, sanitas, which is health, right, in Latin. And so there's like a switch that happens in this period where this idea of good health uh, is uh, being associated slowly with cleanliness. And again, we're, you know, still a, a decade, a couple decades before the, um, the germ theory of diseases is shown to be true. And so thing, people are having an inkling of how things work, the mechanisms, but there's still quite a lot of argument about how communicable diseases are spread. And so coming out of the war, Nightingale is applying, um, is, is applying uh, a lot of effort across lots of different types of reform. But after working with FAR for several months, they, they hone in on this idea of sanitary reform and in particular focusing on hygiene, not the hygiene of, an, of the individual patient, but the hygiene of the built environment, the hygiene of where the soldiers are staying, in particular the hygiene of the hospitals. And so we talk about hygiene, we talk about mainly clean sewer lines. And so the ability to wash and, and flush all of filth away from wherever you're staying. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, we're talking about having, uh, uh, having circulating air. So having the, the, you know, the quantity of an air in the room you know, change because you know, windows are open on either side and you're sucking air through the room. And you know, these, are, these are timeless things that are um, you know, still very relevant. <laughs> you, know, you know, with COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we've, we've had quite a lot of discussion about how do you increase airflow and, and replace the air in a room, you know, a lot faster, whether you're in, your, you're in an airplane tube or a classroom or a hospital. Um, and so this is sort of what they focused on. And this is what they decided 
um, to build their data visualization around. And so the data visualization, you know, has nothing to do with supplies. It and it, and it actually focuses very narrowly on sanitary reform. And and you know, the her data visualization is um, it evolved, meaning that she she built uh, she she iterated. Um, the development of her graphics and their accompanying um, tables of numerals, statistical tables, and text, um, starting with sort of one approach and then refining it over a several-year time span. And so, what it eventually evolved to is this, you know, very eloquent, very uh, scathing sort of production where she says, you know, step one, uh, look at look at how many people are dying. Step two, here are the causes of their death. And what was and so the first step is you're supposed to be outraged at how many people are dying. The second step here are the causes of the deaths, and what you realize is that all these soldiers are dying, and most of them are not dying from battle wounds. Most of them are dying from preventable diseases. And step three is, and we know how to prevent these diseases. The solution is sanitary reform. And she shows she shows an image where here's how many people are dying before sanitary reforms are introduced, and then look, sanitary reforms are introduced at this point. And then afterwards, uh, there, there are far fewer deaths. And so it's a one, two, three, you know, shock and awe with how many people die. Here's why they're dying. And that's even more shocking because these are preventable deaths. And don't believe me, look, we, 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 we implemented reforms and people stopped dying. And, you know, th this, this one, two, three step is very, very eloquent. Um, the data that she's presenting is framed in a very particular way to, uh, to promote um, this idea, and it's interesting because the, the the idea is the idea is right, like the idea is true. Um, as you as you read in the the uh, the essay, uh, Stephen Johnson wrote about you know the, the the three innovations that saved over a billion lives across the last century or so, and you know sanitary reform is 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 one of the three, um, and so so they're right to kind of uh, to to promote this, and kind of, they they sort of knew that they were right. But they, the way that they promoted it was almost they almost propagandized it with the, yeah. uh, with the, the the, um, salacious graphics, the salacious language, the um, the intense focus on just a single solution, not sort of like here are twelve things you can do. It's like no, this is mm. the one thing that you're not doing, and that's why everybody's dying. Um, and so and it, it was, uh, an an incredible lesson in. Nightingale gives us an incredible lesson in um, what it takes to actually achieve reform. Um, mm. You know, it's not just a lesson in sort of analysis or, you know, boots on the ground, like do, doing something heroic, but actually the persistence and the focus and the resources necessary to achieve reform. Yes. And the interesting thing about Nightingale that she she didn't want to do this in a way where you know she would receive the hero's welcome a lot of the work that she did was kind of not really covert but it was picking the right people showing the right you know people in government in policy in all these different areas yes. the right information and getting them really kind of you know engaged and emotional about the information that she was presenting and she did this, you know, with the rose diagrams as well, which was, you know, what you were describing as, you know, it, it was so beautifully eloquent to be able to demonstrate that one, two, three punch that you described. Yeah. So 
Uh, her celebrity is really interesting, and her um, and so, so there's two sides to this. One is that she becomes a celebrity while at war, um, very quickly. In fact, I mean, I think like three or four months into into her service after she lands, um, you know, the London papers already writing about her, and there's a lot of reasons, um, you know, for why she becomes a celebrity. But basically, these reasons are sort of detached from reality. Um, mm. Like she, she, she really was sort of this angelic light of Christ um, heroine that the that the soldiers, you know, the, their own personal Valkyrie that the soldiers uh, looked to. But you know, her her day to day operations and what she was actually doing had little relationship to the uh, celebrity persona that the London papers formed around her. And so the London yeah. papers create a caricature or a character um, that takes off, you know, and mm. way, way more famous than anybody today. I mean, her fame rivaled the queen. Um, yes. And it happened really quickly. And it happened in a way that, you know, she couldn't control because she was, she was at, you know, at war. Um, <laughs> and so she sort of, you know, her relationship with this, uh, with this attention was that she basically, but uh, she practically rejected it. You know, she, she, yeah. she goes home and under an assumed name and, you know, dodges a hero's welcome you know she uh while she does go out in public and meets people you know she doesn't attend ceremonies that you know honor her or anything like this you know she's very focused on her work um you mm. know in you know her her pers her her personality and you know sort of experience and why she's so focused on the work is 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 quite interesting but she's very focused on the work and sort of what her mission is and what she has has to do and so the, the first side of what I was describing is that there's this popular sort of image of her as a nurse, which is really what she's doing. Like, did she nurse soldiers? Like, yeah, she did. But really, she's a, a nursing manager. I mean, she's she's, yeah. she's managing not one, but se several several sites. She's managing dozens of uh, uh, nursing. She's she's writing letters constantly, fighting with all kinds of other administrators. And so, so there's this popular celebrity image of Nightingale. And then everything she does after the war she's doing it largely behind the scenes. And so mm. there's no, no associated popular celebrity image of Nightingale, you know, writing letters at 3 a.m. every night, you know, trying to motivate, you know, the, this prime minister or, or that MP or, um, you know, get, you know, steal this data set from this officer who she knows has it. Um, you know, like all of this stuff is being done behind the scenes. And even when a lot of these publications yeah. come out, um, you know, her name's not actually on it, even though she's, she's the author, you know, she's trying to actually just get the work done, um, and achieve, achieve the things that she wants. And so, you know, there's, there's a whole aspect to Nightingale's story about her, her womanhood, um, her, her role as, as a particular flavor of, uh, feminist. Um, and so that's intersecting with this story as well. And so, you know, if she is a public persona, how much is that helping the campaign? How much is that actually hurting her? And and and, mm. and what's actually possible for somebody in her station to actually accomplish? You know, is she being more effective, working behind the scenes, um, and using soft power instead? And so, so you know, it's 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 quite a complex story, and because it's complex, and because we know so, there's so many surviving archival resources this is why people are so attracted to it over and over and over again mm. because it's it's just it's it's so interesting this i mean people haven't people started writing about her you know in 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 waves you know in 1855 and you know people haven't stopped since absolutely and because of the way that you know she did handle a celebrity it's such an interesting 
kind of comparison to the way that things are handled now when we want to handle social reform. People are using populist platforms and trying to, you know, create this, you know, social energy behind individuals and brand development. But she didn't do any of that. All of that work for her was, you know, trying to minimize that personal individual contribution in order to just get the message across, to be able to get that reform through with the people who would probably not perceive it in as, well, it still wasn't perceived in a positive light until quite later. Mm. But, yeah. you know, to be able to get that message across without polluting it with her being at the figurehead. The, I, I think she commanded a certain amount of soft power because of her celebrity, meaning mm. you wouldn't you wouldn't want her to actually mobilize that public support that she had. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, this is a little bit of speculation. This is sort of outside the bounds of my, you know, my, my, uh, expertise on her, but, um, but she, she did, you know, that you go, it's, I forget exactly what the number is, but you know, before the war, there's like 300 little girls named Florence in Britain every year, <laughs> you know, which is like nothing. And then, you know, uh, years after the war, you know, it's risen to like something like almost 20,000 a year. And it's wow. like, you know, the number three or number four popular name in, in Britain. I mean, her, her popular celebrity, I mean, it's, 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 it's. She was a household Beyonce. name. Yeah. yeah. I mean, much, much larger. And so, so I, I think we can intuit that, you know, there, there, the, the celebrity, even though it wasn't maybe uh, enjoyed, uh, was still mm. useful. Yeah. So would that at that time, I'm not sure if that's within the purview of your research, but would that mm. soft power have had much impact on the work that she was doing or would it have been more along the lines of the target audience of the queen, the government, the army? Like, w would the people have made the difference? I, so I, I, I think that the, the, in this sense, her soft power is getting her access to everybody, all, all, mm. all the everyone's who's powerful who she needs it's also in some sense giving her access to information um mm. you know to it, getting her access to um data um and then just general kind of information and in some sense you know she's she is surprised by you know certain publications that are coming out against her um mm. you know because i mean she's she's waging a campaign i mean she does have sort of adversaries in this campaign yes. right we, we, we sort of mentioned them mentioned them earlier but there, what's interesting is that her adversaries are also using data visualization in in mm. their uh, in their rhetoric, and you know their data visualization is actually much closer to what we're familiar with. They're much more sort of standard charts. And what's fantastic is like these aren't the charts that anybody that they're not the charts that won. Um, you know, it's her weird charts that actually that that actually won, won the argument. Um, and you know, we don't remember. The, the other charts we remember her her work and part of that is because of that popular celebrity um but part of that is just because you know her, her work was so strong absolutely so because you know aside from you know her popular celebrity what made those diagrams so successful in being able to win that argument for them so i think that the diagrams are the most salient part of a of a of a uh, you know the diagrams don't stand on their own and so the diagrams are part of a package, a communications package, and you know they're all they're they're always accompanied by um, by a lot of text, by statistical tables. Um, there's a whole uh, um, publicity push where you have everybody, including Charles uh, Charles Dickens, um, you know, writing in support of their argument and referencing the graphics. 
And so today when we see, and this goes back to part of the original inspiration for the book series, is today we'll see one of her diagrams and it will be isolated. It'll be lonely. The diagrams aren't meant to be lonely. They're not meant to be read only only a single diagram. You're supposed to see the entire set and read them like a story um, from beginning to end. Um, and so, you know, that said, so there's a package of information and a pretty coherent push, uh, you know, of, you know, what we call them, you know, full court press. Um, but, you know, beyond that, the graphics themselves are, are really, really interesting. Uh, one is that they're very high production value. Um, she's from a wealthy family. She's using her own money, her family's money to produce these diagrams. So they're colorful, they're big. Um, and then the, the next thing is that we mentioned that they're kind of weird. Um, they're not like other things. They're not like other diagrams that you've seen. Um, not too much at least. And there's a very sort of, uh, narrow chain of, or, or short chain of elevation, uh, evolution from, you know, uh, from a, a couple circular diagrams that emerged in the late 1820s in France, um, through her collaborator, William Farr, who made some interesting circular diagrams in the, uh, very early 1850s to Nightingale circular diagrams, which come out in the late 1850s. And, and so there's a direct like person to person, um, uh, connection between this very specific circular diagram format that she uses. And what's so fascinating is that she does, she, she, there's an evolution in, even inside her work because she, she published the first a batch of circular diagrams and they were criticized because there was a particular mathematical error in how they were constructed, a mathematical error that even preexisted her work. And mm. in the second batch corrected this mathematical error. And in correcting this particular mathematical error, um, the graphic form was greatly strengthened and also the artistic, the aesthetic composition of the sheet was also greatly strengthened. Um, and so you can imagine that she sort of had two bites at this particular apple where she, she made this first batch in a particular way, but then she got, because they put so much force behind it, she got a lot of feedback and, you know, as a, you know, I'm a practicing information designer and. Um, you know, feedback is gold, you know, you could be the smartest designer, maybe in any medium. And, you know, you can't, you can't really make a perfect design. You know, the only way you can make a really, really good design is doing the best you can and then fi figuring out ways to get, to get feedback on it, you know, whether it's, you know, the public or, or, or some other, and then you learn actually how people actually interact with it. You know, is it, is it how you intended it or, or, or is it not? And so Nightingale had that, that feedback loop. Um, and, and, and got that opportunity, the second, the second bite of the apple. And that second bite is, it, you know, produced uh, a three diagram story. The middle diagram is, is the one that is most reproduced uh, of, of, of all of her contributions. Yes. And I saw that there were some, you know, comments being made that, you know, the kind of work that she did could easily have been represented in a standard bar chart. And, mm. you know, that that's true, but the thing that I thought was most interesting about her diagrams was that because it was a time series, having it in that circular format allowed you to mm. more easily convey that passage of time and connect that to the change of events that occurred as a result of the reform. But, you know, at what point do we go from, you know, it conveys that information perfectly as a bar chart to mm. being able to present it in a novel way that doesn't distract 
from the content itself. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, bar charts are safe. They're familiar. That's sort of where, one of the things we started with. Um, mm. But the problem is that they're common. And so you might make a standard bar chart and it's not going to attract any attention. And the pro and so you might do something more daring and more original. And the trade-off is that you might attract attention with it, but you might also introduce a barrier to access um, that it's mm. going to take longer for people to understand um, what, what the heck is going on here. And one of the problems that we suffer with in our modern information ecosystem is that, you know, people don't read books anymore. People don't spend a lot of time with content. You know, people are consuming most information on screens that are smaller than a piece of toast. And so if you want to convey something that it, it, you might have to be very expeditious with it and use that bar chart. Um, you know, Nightingale's information ecosystem, you know, people are reading a lot more that I think than people read today. They're reading, they're, they're reading maybe not a lot more, but they're reading more long form content, I think, than we do today. Mm. Um, and, and so there's a certain patience and remember also, because this is over 150 years ago, that the information design norms that we are familiar with today are not as well established then. And so there is probably an opportunity um, also to be a little bit more wacky with your, with your mm. work, because really, how, you know, what is familiar? Um, you know, may, may, certainly things are not as familiar as they are today. Absolutely. And that, that is an interesting kind of thing to consider because at that time they did have that burst of um, access to information, especially with the steam printing press with the rollers. A lot more people were able to access yeah. the information more quickly, more um, timely. The information was, you know, people were able to get news that was new a lot sooner than before. Yes. So, yeah, it, it, it was a very interesting time to be able to present all of her content, all of her information, and make it in such an accessible format for the population. Yeah. So what impact did Florence Nightingale's work have on data visualization as we know it today? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, so I think that it's been, um, her impact on the craft of data visualization is really interesting because her diagram is sometimes imitated, but usually not successfully. Um, meaning that uh, it's really hard to pull off what she pulled off. Um, mm. And it might be because the particular format she used was perfectly tuned to the data story she wanted to tell. Um, yeah. And if you just lift that same form to different content, it just doesn't work as well. Um, mm. Early on, you know, she's, uh, one of the few uh, woman, you know, data visualization practitioners. Um, and so she's sort of been tokenized as kind of, you know, people point to her as like, here's, here's the one lady who did it. You know, it turns out there's actually several ladies who did it and, you know, even before her um, and, and certainly a little bit after her. And so, um, but, but, but yet she's still elevated as kind of like the token, the, the token data visualization gal. Uh, if that mm. makes sense, which, you yeah. know, I think for a long time was, was really nice, but I think that she was sort of, um, you know, famous for, in the same way that she was a celebrity, um, you know, generally, you know, maybe she was celebrated, you know, for, for reasons that 
you know, weren't properly understood. And, and that, and that was part of the thing that drew me into this book is trying to really understand, well, what, you know, what did she do? Like, what did she do? And why did she do this? And, and try to understand, like, is there a story here or not? And, you know, it turns out there's, you know, it's quite an incredible story behind it. It is an incredible story. So you know, what surprised you? What did you find most interesting in the course of researching and writing this book or this essay? Oh my goodness. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, you know, writing is a, is a very, uh, strange pursuit. Um, you know, and this is, this is the first history that I've written, you know, book length history that I've written. And so I think that, uh, reconstructing, um, reconstructing her world in my own mind and trying to fill in, you know, as many pieces as I could, um, you know, that was, that was a joy that there was so much content and pieces out there and that I was able to find them and, you know, sort of, you know, reassemble, you know, I don't, if it's a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, you know, finding enough, enough pieces to the puzzle and putting them back together so that you can get, you know, a sense of, you know, of this story. Right. Um, and so th th that whole process, again, this is maybe a little bit of a meta comment, but that whole, that <laughs> whole process was incredibly satisfying. I remember at one point, um, you know, turning to my partner while I was writing this and, you know, cause I wrote it during the pandemic is like, I, I had a better sense of the month to month of Nightingale's world than I did of my own because <laughs> during the pandemic and lockdown, everything, you know, especially living here in California, you know, yeah, everything was blurry. Everything kind of seemed the same. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, there's no sense of what month it was. Um, whereas, you know, I, I could tell you what was happening in every week of 1857. <laughs> um, and so, 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 so that, that, that you know, again, this is maybe a personal reflection, but going, going on that yeah. process was, was really, uh, was really satisfying. Um, and then everything that you, I mean, look, there, there, there's so many like little nuggets that are, that are, yes. are mostly all made, made the cut, but things like that while Nightingale was doing this far, I was working with the first, um, machine information technology, you know, the, the mm. first machine computer, um, things like, you know, Charles Dickens is, is helping their cause, you know, which, which we mentioned earlier things yeah. like I, I read a, um, I read an old catalog of everything the British library held, uh, holds on, um, in the Nightingale collection. And I read a description of, a hand-drawn draft diagram um and i was like wait what and it turns out you know and nobody's ever nobody's ever you know these have never been published or anything but there's a there's a whole set of early drafts with nightingale pencil edits you know explaining you know use this line weight and this line you know this color and you know all all, all of these details i mean the fact that this exists is 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 absolutely spectacular yes. and so how rich the story is, how interconnected the story the, the, the story is to, and, and you sort of picked up on this earlier, how, how mm. interconnected the story is to kind of everything else that's exciting that's going on at this time, whether it's technology or the ravages of colonialism, um, everything happening in medicine, everything happening in social science and or urban design, uh, the role of women in society. Like there's just all of these things flying around. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, 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 again, there's, there's a reason why people have been attracted to her and mm. to her story for, for, you know, 150 years. Yeah. And just whilst I was reading through, I just kept making notes for myself going, 
yes, you know, Jon Snow and cholera and figuring out, you know, his little mud map of, you know, disease spread. And then, you know, in France, they were doing the crime statistics, that new idea of social physics and social statistics. And, you know, that, that was, you know, going to be just before the, you know, Jack the Ripper murders and, you know, everything there was just so interconnected and you forget how much actually did happen in that period that advanced so many things. Yeah, the the John the, the John Snow story, which is sort of a a margin note in the book. Yeah, I mean that's a good example of how interconnected things were because John the the Broad Street cholera outbo- uh, outbreak for you know any listeners who's not not familiar you know, John Snow is sort of the other top epidemiological talent in in England at the time. He and William Farr, and unfortunately John Snow you know ended up dying very young at the age of like forty seven or something, and so Farr kind of goes on and carries the torch. Um, but so it's September, um, there's a polluted water source. Jon Snow has, you know, maybe for a decade, has, has a theory about cholera being, uh, being in bad water. Um, and so uh, maybe 800 people have died and it's a couple of days into the epidemic and Jon Snow works with the authorities to remove the pump handle. Um, months later, he makes a, a map. Um, and so this is, again, this is now a tool of analysis. You know, mm. sort of foreshadows Nightingale. It's not a tool of analysis, but Jon Snow makes a map, and it, similar to Nightingale, there's actually several maps. And so mm. the first map is done by an engineer, the second by Snow, and then Jon Snow gets a second bite of the apple, and and, and he makes he makes even a third map. Um, but this map is uh, iconic in in terms of epidemiology and persuasive cartography. But it basically shows like, hey, here's all the deaths, and they're all centered on this particular polluted water pump. So. Where's the intersection? Well, it turns out that Nightingale <laughs> was working in a hospital, taking care of patients from this um, from this epidemic, and mm. um, it, it, or, uh, this outbreak of cholera. And you know, she's taking care of actually, pro- I think mostly prostitutes at a at a hospital that was just off the map. So just like on the northern, like two blocks north of the boundary of Jon Snow's. You know this famous persuasive cartography. So Nightingale yeah. almost made uh, Nightingale almost made the map, um, or at least the building she was in almost almost made the map. But you know it shows it shows how exciting this is, and, and it's also maybe a, a function of you know the, we have all this all this um, early technology, you know exciting modern technology, whether it's you know steam driven processes or otherwise the telegraph, um, and so these are helping really really concentrate power. Mm. Um, you know, in, in a similar way that we have power highly concentrated in our society today through digital technology, they, they, they were concentrating power. And so I think one of the reasons that it is so exciting is that there are these characters and these characters just keep popping up and they all, they all seem to know each other and they all, yeah. you know, they all seem to go on these adventures with one, uh, one another. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and so I, th- I think that, th- that, that's an aspect of, uh, of, of the environment as well. Absolutely. It's very fascinating to read. And, you know, I, I remember stopping halfway and just not being able to contain myself from just messaging a friend going, you have to read this book. There's just so much going on. You don't understand. There's just, everyone's connected. And yeah, it's, yeah, it was, it's an excellent read. I highly recommend anyone to get a hand, get their hands on it. So, you know, just wonderful conversation about this. I could totally keep talking about the history of the 1800s with you at this point. Um, We should probably start wrapping up. So 
what I do normally at the end of my conversations is I ask three soft, soft questions. A lot of people dispute the fact that they're soft. And it's just, mm. you know, unrelated to the work, but just a little, adds a little bit of interest. And given the breadth of your work, I think that, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. But first mm. off, what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? Um, so, I mean, one of the nice things about being a data storyteller is, you know, every, every, you know, you can make a data story about nearly anything, but, um, <laughs> but the, the thing that's really saved my mental health throughout this pandemic is paddling. Um, mm. so I'm, I'm very lucky to live in San Francisco and even more lucky that the San Francisco Bay is two blocks that way. Oh, and nice. so I, I drag my kayak, uh, out of the garage, uh, several times a week. And um, we have a beach and I just, I'm able to go right into the water. And um, several times a week I go out, I see all the seabirds. We have sea lions. I go say hello to the sea lions. Um, oh, sometimes wonderful. you see a harbor seal. Um, rarely you see, uh, you know, porpoise, but sometimes you see porpoise, you know, we're, I'm fairly deep into the bay. So they don't, they don't usually come this deep, but um, um, yeah, that's a, a really lovely activity to you know, sort of clear the mind, get off the screens, you know, deal, deal with the waves and, you know, check the tides and, <laughs> you know, get, get some, get a little exercise. Um, and so that's, uh, again, that's, that's saved my mental health for the last couple of years. Can imagine the very meditative to be able to just get out there in your own, just in the quiet and just relax and, you know, take in nature for a change. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? So I, I, I was going to, I was going to respond and, you know, ask you like, well, what kind of book do you mean? But since we're talking about data storytelling, I actually have two of my childhood books here with me and my, that <laughs> I really loved growing up. And so one is from a little bit, a little bit earlier than the other. So this one uh, was a, I wrote about this in my first book, loving this book, but this is actually a magazine series. And so this is, this is called Zoo Books. Oh, cool. And, uh, and so this is, this is, um, this is a copy of, uh, you know, sort of a National Geographic, you know, light for kids type of publication. But this spread in particular, you know, always, always stuck with me. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a pictorial representation of all the food an elephant has to eat in a year. Oh, wow. And, and, and you know, to describe it anyway, just listening, you know, you have a, a single Indian elephant and a zookeeper sort of scratching their head and you have, you know, giant, enormous mounds of of hay and alfalfa and um, potatoes and bread and then you have water trucks just stretching to the horizon and so you know uh, content like this you know illustrated illustrated um, diagrams you know always you know since I was really little really you know sort of captured captured my attention and so th th I think that's my I mean that's not a book it's a magazine but you know yeah. that sort of evolved to like pieces like this like you know book about cross-section yes. this one is you know cross-sections men of war and so you know you know the, the type of thing where you can look at a diagram again this isn't this isn't statistical data but you can no you but can it's look still at this book. storytelling yeah it's storytelling and it's full of detail and you know it's doing the same thing that uh statistical data visualization statistical abstract charts are doing is like it's giving you a view of reality that's not possible in any other way and absolutely um, you know, that's and that, that you know i just i just you know love love this kind of stuff whether it's a cutaway yes. diagram or you know some sort of explanation um you know th this is this type of this is some of the you know early content that i was uh you know i was growing up with that really 
you know, that I can look back to and, you know, see the, see the breadcrumbs. Yes, absolutely. And it's all that sort of information because as a child, the idea of scale and scope really is difficult to kind of convey sometimes. And mm. so images like that, it's like, yes, that's an elephant. It's huge. It eats a lot, but how much is a lot? That much is a lot. And it's, mm -hmm. it's such an easy way to convey that kind of information to a child in, you know, so when they're forming all these ideas about how the world works and yeah, yes. definitely I have some of those cross-section books as well. And it's just wonderful, even as an adult to have a look and just see how these things work and how these things look in that kind of shape. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who'd like to get into data visualization and start a storytelling and what advice should they ignore? Uh, so I think that, um, the, the, the best advice is, you know, there's a lot of theory that's very attractive and there's a lot of kind of books. I even wrote one about how to do it, but like the most important thing to do is to do the work, um, you know, fig figure out a way to make lots of charts, figure out a way to make lots of data stories and, um, and do the work, uh, you know, and, and you'll spend, I don't know, at least five years, maybe, you know, doing the work and figuring out how to, how, how to do it in ways you you know, the ways that work for you, the ways that inspire you, um, the ways that hopefully create, you know, some, something interesting and valuable to somebody else so that you can keep doing it. Um, and so, you know, learning, learning through, learning through practice is, is important in any craft, but I think in, 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 in particular, uh, this one. Absolutely. All right. So thank you so much, RJ, for speaking with me today. It has been so wonderful speaking with you about your book, about your journey and, yeah, just sharing in your passion for Nightingale's story and all the work that she did and, you know, how everything kind of pulled together with, you know, the data, the people, and, you know, just getting this insight into that period in time where there was so much change and reform and flux in the way that we did so many different things. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you, Michelle. My pleasure. Thank you. So if people would like to know more about your work, where can they go? Uh, so Twitter, uh, info we trust at info we trust. And uh, the book is going to go on presale uh, soon at visionarypress.com. Excellent. Brilliant. Those will definitely be put in the show notes. All right. So thank you again, IJ. It's been really wonderful speaking with you. And I hope you have an amazing rest of your evening. Okay. Good night. Good night. Lawrence Nightingale's story and her commitment to sanitary reform is absolutely inspiring, and RJ has beautifully conveyed her passion and her brilliance in his book Florence Nightingale and her mortality and health diagrams. To learn more about Florence Nightingale, RJ's work, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampark website at steampowershow.com. You can also find out more about RJ's work on Twitter at InfoWeTrust, and the Information Graphic Visionaries book series will be available at visionarypress.com, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave a comment, and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.